All right. I know. All right, everybody, you can grab a seat. We've just got about 30 minutes left and just a few things to cover, so we're going to um, do our best to go thoughtfully through some passages and then leave uh, the rest for some questions at the end. Um, right now we're going to start in what we're calling the Ecclesial Call in the Holy Spirit, so that's a title in your notes, and that's essentially um, unpacking the stuff that the Spirit does and the set up of the church and what people were called to, assigned to, and how that played out, not just in the first century, but today as well. So we're getting that conversation started, and then next week we're going to be diving into some of those more difficult passages um, to talk through offices, um, etc. So uh, for those of you who've been following with our Acts series, you've heard us talk about Acts 2 and how... Um, the prophecy in Joel 2 gets pulled into the foreground as Peter is chatting in the upper room. And in Joel 2, it indicates a future date where the spirit would be poured out on all people, young, old, male, female. And there would be a, a unity and an inclusion of the pouring out of the spirit. We see that fulfilled in Acts 2 during the day of Pentecost. And so the question that needs to be asked here when it comes to the conversation around gender and roles and women in leadership, is does the Holy Spirit and his gifting of the people of God ever make gender a prior requirement for certain types of giftings? So we're not talking about offices, but giftings. And the short answer to that question is no. There is nowhere in scripture where gender is a prior requirement for certain types of gifting. It follows the clarity given by Jesus as he leaves the Spirit to be our helper and commissions all people to go and make disciples. And it also follows the clear standard of leadership, both modeled and taught by Jesus, to take the form of a servant and to be used by the Spirit rather than with agenda-driven priorities. It also alleviates this age-old problem that often emerges in seminaries, so my experience over the past four years um, has been wonderful at Western Seminary, but there has been a little bit of a culture that students, male students, often assume they are gifted for ministry just because they meet the first requirement being male. Now, to begin with, gender, to begin with gender rather than gifting has left us with some moral failings and implosions that we see in the church. And the witness of Christ has been drugged through the mud as a repercussion. And we have a generation, Generation um, Z, that feels the need to deconstruct all aspects of Jesus and the church because the emphasis was on the wrong thing. Now, I want to be clear. It is not because they are male that they are, we are in this situation. It is because the priority for the qualification and requirement was on gender and not on Holy Spirit gifting. So this is significant here, is the Holy Spirit does not make a gender, a qualification for how he pours out his spirit on all people. But there's been a culture shift that has taken place that gender becomes the first priority for what it means to participate in the giftings of the Holy Spirit that has caused repercussions for the way that church has been led, the big C church. So this naturally um, causes us to have this type of conversation. And it invites us to recalibrate the agenda of being a spirit-led church rather than being a reaction to a feminist agenda or to lean into the other side of things, of allowing male, 
being the most important qualification for what it means to be gifted by the Holy Spirit and to be faithful to the giftings of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So that is just kind of laying some groundwork for um, Acts 2. You guys have, most of you guys have been in our series, and so we've had tons of conversation around this. But it's the foundation that we want to lay before we start talking about um, functions and offices when it comes to how this is expressed in the life of the church. Handing it over to you. Tag in. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just thinking of actually 1 Corinthians 12 as well. So Galatians 3.28 is, is talking about like who gets to be included in this rite of baptism. And it, it's famous sort of verse, like neither Jew, Gentile, male, female. There's this kind of everyone language. Um, and 1 Corinthians 12 picks up the same, it's like riffs on the same theme, um, and talks about how the Spirit is being poured out. So it's really explicit. Um, there's varieties of gifts in verse 4. Um, but the same spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord. There's varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given through the spirit. And then he lists a bunch of things. Um, uh, and that these are, uh, if you go down to verse 13, uh, picks up the same theme again. This one spirit being poured out through multiple gifts that different individuals the spirit shows up and manifests himself in different ways but it's for everyone and that same language of the same like everyone who's been baptized everyone who's included in this um, and just really similar language to Galatians so yeah I like the explicitness in Corinthians Mm -hmm. so another key verse when we're thinking like okay when God's like pouring out his spirit and building this church who does he want to use is Ephesians 4 and so and this can be really helpful to, like Molly said, distinguish giftedness from roles or functions. Maybe I'll leave roles off the table. People use that word different ways, but functions and offices. And so um, I'm just going to uh, read this um, in verse 11. I need a larger print Bible for the evenings. Okay, here we go. Uh, so it's talking about Jesus coming to earth, ascending, sending the Spirit, creating this unity, and then what he's going to do to establish this new movement. And so verse 11 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, it goes on but it's the first bit that's really key Um, sidebar is just the to equip all the saints for the work of the ministry like so there's the radical inclusion again like all the saints are doing ministry all of them Um, what type of ministry it is you know are there differences in roles we're going to keep getting to that but the like we're remember today we're trying to focus on like what's the stuff that we should really clearly agree on that is the foundation to then go after our next questions. Um, And so just some language usage stuff that can really help us. We've got gifts, and there's lists of them, like the classic Corinthians 12, that I just read a little bit of, and so that's what Molly was talking about, like the Holy Spirit. And And there's two sort of aspects of gifts. One is the sort of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I want to do this right now. 
and he just shows up and does something. And it's not like a particular person is like, oh, that always happens with that person. It's just something the Holy Spirit does. But also, we can talk about this, like the Holy Spirit gifting, which is more of a like, oh, I want to kind of, I don't know, authoritatively or in a, in a way like commission you with a particular anointing for a, a particular uh, type of operation in, in this mission. So it could be like an internal facing one or an external facing one, like sort of uh, going out evangelizing or, or something more internal. And so those gifts, there's just nowhere in scripture that differentiates like, oh, that gift's only for men um, or something like that. What we've got a list of here are functions within the church. So in the church in the New Testament and into the early church, being an apostle, a prophet, a, I've lost the list, an evangelist or a shepherd and teacher. Those two often rolled into one, shepherd, teach, pastor, teacher type person. Um, those are not offices of the church. So an office is like an established, recognized, kind of enduring role. Like you've been appointed to a post where you're going to continually have responsibility in this place, in this part of the church, to make sure this thing is being cared for. So it's more sort of offices come with more responsibility language. And the offices we see in the New Testament are elders and deacons. So like the way the New Testament talks about that type of way of categorizing a person, elder and deacon are the two. And we're going to have to have a chat about male and female elders and deacons. So that's coming. But just that helps us clarify the language. But these, these are not offices, these are functions. So people could, you know, uh, function as prophet at a particular time, but that didn't define, like, who they were in God's church. They could be a deacon who could prophesy, or they could just be Joe Bloggs, who just came to know Jesus last week, that prophesies. Like, it, it could be this huge variety here. Um, and it's just it's just the way the language gets used. Um, and there's an inclusiveness here to these functions. Um, and so in the same way we saw with gifts, um, like the language, like gender is not wrapped around that language. When it comes to functions, gender is not wrapped around that as well. What we're going to do next week is the, the offices that's where like the rubber's going to meet the road on like okay now we're, like this is where we might start to see some of this emerge um and so i'm just gonna i mean we're going to talk about some of these people so i'm not gonna steal your thunder but i'm i'm gonna steal your thunder um and just mention of these so uh apostles we're familiar with some of the men called apostles like paul really famous <laughs> but also uh junior is mentioned as not just an apostle, but well-known among the apostles, like a prominent apostle. Um, prophets. Do we see male and female prophets? Um, actually, there's more women, I think, noted as prophesying in the New Testament than men. Um, so a couple of examples in Acts 21, we've got Philip's daughters, all of whom are prophets. Like, imagine that household. Like, Philip's had a pretty radical time, like, Ethiopian eunuchs, like, all this stuff, you know, in his life. And then, lo and behold, like, all his daughters are prophetess, prophetesses. 
Um, yeah, that must be a pretty crazy household. So that's pretty cool. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 11, which we're going to unpack in a bit more detail next week, um, Paul uh, talks about, he, he doesn't say, um, like, oh, you know, I don't know, should women prophesy? Should, you know, like, he just like, when women prophesy. It's like an assumed reality. When women prophesy. And prophesying in the, uh, well, I guess we'll define these in a second. Let me give the rest of the examples. Evangelists. Um, I, the, what's often cited as the first evangelists are the people who are the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, which is Mary Magdalene, who also was probably a prostitute. Radical inclusion again. Um, but actually, there's a story that comes before that in John 4. And so there's the the woman, you know, has this interaction with Jesus, goes back to a town, and in verse 29 it says, many of that town believed at the woman's testimony. So the first person, no, like, well, yeah, at least in John's Gospel, chronology of the Gospel is a difficult thing. One of the first people who's noted as going and telling people about Jesus is this woman who has this radical interaction with Jesus. So, functioning as evangelists um, and then I'm going to steal my own thunder because we'll talk about her in a minute but Priscilla so someone who is a leader in the house church helping like pastor like guide people and who actually steps in to where we see like noted like oh she was teaching someone uh, Priscilla is a good example um, so just a little bit about these as well a- apostle um, it, a good translation of that word in English would maybe be ambassador. Sometimes people say sent ones. Um, but, you know, I could, like, I could send Jake, but like, Jake, get out. You know, like, I've sent him, but I haven't really sent him with anything to do anything. So you can be a sent one and not really be an apostle. An apostle is someone who's commissioned and sent with a particular message and authority to go bring that message, bring that influence somewhere else. So ambassador's a pretty good word. Um, and we've mentioned already the 12. They are in a special category all of their own as like founding members, like foundational members, foundational apostles. But other people are noted as being apostles in the New Testament. So we, it, it's, uh, we just need to remember when we use the word apostle, we don't always mean the 12. There were more apostles than just the 12, but the 12 were the special ones. Um, uh, prophecy. Um, we can tend to think, I don't know, like the image that comes to mind, you know, we're, we're in church and like a raggedy guy comes in eating locusts and it's like, behold, the word of the Lord, you know, and just like, whoa, that's a prophet, you know, that's some sort of weirdo who lives in the desert. But actually prophecy was a simple function of like telling forth what God has to say. And so in the, uh, in the New Testament church, in the early church, their practices of prophecy looked a lot like what preaching like, or standing on a stage saying stuff does. So, and like in our church, anything from like the Bible study to leading communion to like stuff the worship leader says as he like guides us through, or man, God's really put this in my heart. I think God wants to, you know, all of those things. Or even like in pre gathering prayer, someone being like, I think God's really put this, I think God wants to do something today about this. Like, all of that fits within the big bucket of prophecy. Um, and so, you know, in the New Testament church, it, it could be sort of, uh, you've, got, like, you've got examples in Acts of someone saying, hey, I think this is going to happen. Or I think this is what's really going on. But sometimes it could just be, 
um, I know, expositing and explaining the way of Jesus. Um, evangelists had the function of going and telling people. So, um, I mean, I, like uh, I mentioned Philip. Like, oh, there's someone. Hey, I think I'll be bold and just like tell them something. Like that's performing the role of an evangelist. Or like Paul on his missionary journeys. Like, hey, we went and sat down by the river and there's this woman, Lydia, and we got talking to her and started sharing Jesus with her. And like, th- these are all functions of being an evangelist. Um, that, and that's a great one for like all the times that Paul functions as an evangelist shows that you can do more than one of these functions because he was also busy doing some apostling while he was doing his evangelizing. And then the shepherd teacher is that person who's got a bit more of an internal focus of I'm going to care for the people of God. So I've got this like muscle I want to exercise of like making sure everyone's safe and well and healthy and the teacher part that like they're growing and knowing what's right about the way of Jesus. And so I think there's a reason that these two are paired together in this list of functions um, because actually teaching people about Jesus, which is not like what we're doing in a class now, um, is, you know, that's our classic box for teaching. But teaching can be a little bit more of like the continual late night conversations I have with one of my kids about something they're wrestling with or something like that. Like it's, it's that disciple making, like getting maturity into people because teaching is, is, is not just telling, it's, it's partly coaching as well. And that coaching thing, that's where we can really see the crossover with being someone who's got that kind of shepherd mentality of wanting to care for someone and help them uh, help them grow. And so useful language for us. So we ought to distinguish gifts, functions, offices, help us talk with more clarity. And then right here, we've got four functions. And we actually see within the New Testament, both men and women in each of these functions. So... Should we do some people, which we did in the podcast last week in the Old Testament, but this week we're going to squeeze it in. So I'm going to start with a favourite, which is Priscilla. Okay, so Priscilla pops up in uh, Acts the uh, chapter 18, at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila meet Paul, and they're tent makers, so they end up hanging out with Paul. And we, we don't really know, like, much about their status at that time. Like, had they heard about the way of Jesus? Like, where are they at? What's going on? Or do they just not know Jesus? But Paul's a tent maker, and he's like, hey, can I stay with you guys? And, like, that's how they come to know Jesus. It doesn't say, I kind of like the second version. That'd be really cool. Paul just like, hey, I'm going to room with you, and you're going to find out about Jesus. Seems like a very poor thing to do. Um, but it's interesting in uh, verse 26... Um, so I might read this. No, not chapter 26. Chapter 18, verse 26. Here we go. And so um, Paul stays with Priscilla and Aquila, and then he uh, disappears off to do his thing. Um, but there was this, I'll start in verse 24. There's this Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. So he's a... Uh, sort of Hellenized Jew. So one of the people that Jews in Israel were like, yeah, you're a Jew, but not really. You're kind of a weirdo because you've occupied this Hellenistic world. Well, he came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, so he knew his Bible. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he only knew about the baptism of John. So he was like, he was missing a chapter of the story. So he had an incomplete knowledge about Jesus. And then it's really interesting that then it says, um, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So this is a teaching function that Priscilla and Aquila are doing together. But the noteworthy thing is when Paul first meets this couple, it says Aquila and Priscilla, the husband first, which is by far the norm. Like the order of naming matters. You know, if I say like Molly and Jake or Jake and Molly, you're like, oh yeah, those two. But in the ancient world, if I say like Jake and Molly, I'm like, oh yeah, so you want to, he's in the foreground. And if I say Molly and Jake, oh no, she's in, like, she's the predominant um, partner in, you know, in this couple. Um, from, from the moment we see them actually starting to join in with the mission, Priscilla consistently is named first. So she seems to have had a more major role. And here we've got a woman involved in teaching, instructing, explaining the way of Jesus to another guy. So it's a really interesting example. Um, in Romans 16, Paul lists a huge number of people and he uh, lists again Priscilla and Quilla as co-workers. Now, we have the word co-workers, um, so we're like, oh, is that a technical term? Like, what does that mean? But uh, some scholars think that co-workers for Paul was a bit more of a technical term and might be closer to the word we would um, use for like church planters and like people who are a part of a team helping establish a new church somewhere. And so, uh, you know, they, they meet uh, Paul in Corinth and then they're traveling around Asia and then we see them kind of pop up in some different places involved in fledgling churches. And again, Priscilla named first. So both of them doing it together. And this is a beautiful like picture of partnership, you know. This is not a story of like, yeah, Priscilla ditched her husband and just did this thing by herself, like third wave feminism or something weird. They're, they're still partners and they're still doing it as a couple. It's just very, very strange and countercultural that she's in the foreground. Um, she uh, also pops up while well, they both do in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 and at the end of another letter. Um, and I kind of like the way that, you know, there's, even though they're traveling around Asia, they've got this clear bond with their home city. So they've kept connected. You know, like this, this city they've come from, you know, really cares. So there's this little picture of like, maybe they've praying for them, they've commissioned them, maybe they feel like they sent them out, like, oh yeah, like that's our, that's our man and woman in Asia. You know, like they're people we sent out. So it's, I, I like the, the, the bond and the connectedness there. Um, and in Second uh, Timothy 4, they're named again. Uh, and it's just greetings from Paul, but alongside Onesophorus. And so they're working in this house church, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila working with Onesophorus kind of paints a picture of these three as leaders helping to establish this new house church. So really interesting character. There's probably quite a bit more to say about her, but I will say... At some point in the past, if you scroll through the House of Learning podcast, we did a whole episode about Priscilla and Aquila. So that's enough for her, uh, on her for now. Okay. 
the second female leader that we want to highlight is Junia. So we see her at the end of the Romans, uh, the book of Romans in Romans 16. And it's worth noting that uh, the more Romanized an area was, the more visible we see leaders being. And since Paul mis- Paul's missionary efforts were focused on the urban areas of the Roman Empire, it should come as no surprise that we that most of the women named as church leaders in the New Testament surface in his letters. And this is especially true of uh, the letter to the Roman church. The letter carrier was a woman, uh, Phoebe, who we'll talk about probably on the podcast just based on time. Uh, and at least five of the nine that Paul greets were ministry colleagues or coworkers at the end of his letter were female. The English translation, though, stemming from the 1940s to the 1980s, obscure the fact of Junia being female because at the time, uh, for those of you who were able to be there last week, uh, there was a reaction to the feminist movement movement taking place and so non-inclusive understandings of leadership during this period is partly to blame. So women cannot be leaders, that was some of the agenda as a backlash from the feminist movement. And so the language of leadership started to become eliminated, particularly uh, in the translation efforts. And so Junia actually gets translated from the 1940s to the 1980s as the masculine Junius. Now there's several problems with this. Among the leaders recognized, this is who Junia, prior to the translation of um, her becoming Junius, uh, was recognized among the leaders in Rome, and she received the highest marks. This is what Richard was talking of earlier. Paul greets her as a co-worker, along with Andronicus, as fellow Jews who have been in prison with him, and they stand out among the apostles. So they're not just apostles, but they are the apostles of apostles. They are receiving high marks. Both of them were Jewish, both had Greek names, and both preceded Paul in Christ. So trying to circumvent their status of apostleship by changing her gender was as foolish as it was incorrect. The majority of the English translations done prior to the 40s and after the 80s translated it as Junia, but we see the section of time where it's translated as the masculine Junius. Now, there's some reasons that, are, that, they're, uh, that this is inaccurate. The main one being is that the masculine name Junius does not occur in any inscription, letterhead, piece of writing, epitaph, or literary work in the New Testament or other writings that surround this New Testament time period. The feminine Junia, however, appears widely and frequently. Perhaps best known is Junia, the half-sister of the Roman general Brutus, and the name Junia also appears in first-century inscriptions from New Testament locales in Ephesus, Lydia, Troas, as well as other places. Junia is also found on tombstones, especially in and around Rome, when females would pass away. So a modern-day example of this, um, again, this is a little bit more apples and oranges, but to try and paint a, a little bit of a 21st century picture, my name is Molly. I have never met a man named Molly up until this point. So if a letter was written and circulated as a standardized approach to what um, gender Molly would be in the 21st century, um, maybe putting aside for a second the gender-fluid conversation um, if you, if you are able, if you were to read all over literature that Molly was a female name, Molly was a female name, Molly was a female name, 
And then all of a sudden you started to see that Molly was trying to be crowbarred to use as a male name, just for a small period of time, and then back to female once again. That would seem a little bit odd, because you had never met a man named Molly. Molly was not a common man name during that time. That is what is happening here. We don't have record of men being called Junius. We have several examples, tons of examples in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, in culture, as well as in the writings that surround the New Testament at the time, that Junia was a female and that it was a female name. And so there's a little bit of um, frustration in the academic world that this name, for a certain period of time, during a reaction to the feminist movement, that this outstanding apostle, Junia, who should be highly, highly regarded as not just a female, but an influence in the Roman church, gets robbed of that opportunity because they translated her name as male. I'm looking at the time here and I'm thinking... Uh, can I add do, one? You can add one thing. I don't think you said... The other translation thing is, is she well-known to the apostles or well-known among the apostles? And within that same period, towards the latter half when pressure was being exerted, that there's really no textual warrant for this not being a female named Junior. Um, even though no Greek grammar had ever established that you could transla- translate this Greek as well-known to the apostles, it's almost like some theological assumptions that, oh, if she's a woman, it can't mean well-known as an apostle. It was like, oh, well, what our theology is telling us, here's a, a new way to use Greek we've never come across before, because we know theologically she can't be an apostle, so the Greek that we've actually discovered, like there's a new bit of Greek grammar we didn't know anywhere else. And, and it was just that the, some, some theology was driving the translation. So it's a good example of like really taking care that we're allowing the text to shape us, not the other way around. Yeah. So we'll talk about Phoebe on the podcast this week. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, we didn't really get to dive into the household codes. And, then, and that is a huge conversation, but we might... There's some interesting like themes to draw out, maybe not get in the weeds. So we'll do some of that. Phoebe's awesome, so we could talk about her for 20 minutes. So listen to the podcast for that one. But are there any questions? Any extra thoughts that we can talk about right now? And I'm going to write them down in case I feel like we don't give good answers, and then we could do some of that on the podcast. Aquila, yeah. Aqua sounds like Aquaman's nickname or something. have to look that up. I can't think of any. I can't think of any in the Bible that are listed as couples either. It's quite rare. Which is actually is. Yes. Yeah. 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 Let let us do thoughtful research on that and get back to you so that we don't just. I think if you're making a position, and I would like a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Priscilla and Aquila. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I pronounced those right. I was just thinking, you know, 
teaches, or you know, Aquila teaches about fishing, just in my example. He kind of took a, a leap Well, it says Priscilla and Aquila explained the way of God more fully to him. So it names both of them as being active in it, but the fact that it names her first. Sure. Yeah. That would be like my wife introducing me to to Lynn, and now since I've got the expertise, I'm the one that's going to talk to Lynn. Yeah. I I think it's... Yeah, it might be similar to the whole junior conversation. Like, we can always come up with a reading... Where like, oh, I know it says Priscilla and Aquila both did it, but really Priscilla's only named in some way that she wasn't really doing it, but it made sense to include her name. But that's not a natural reading of the Greek. So there would have to be some other reasons we've got that are making us decide that's what it says. Because the sort of plain sense of it is that both of them are active. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I can't think of one. And so I'm, I'm pretty settled on just reading the plain text as stating what it states, rather than trying to explain away something that it says. Yeah. Well, not, not guessing. I mean, we tend to read most sentences as saying something that would be natural to the author and his reader. Um, so we don't, we don't normally call that a guess. Um, if I was saying... Oh yeah, it names it names Aquila, but earlier on it named Priscilla, so probably she was doing it too. Then I'd be making a guess, but it actually states Priscilla and Aquila were explaining the way of God more fully. So it names both of them as being active in the verb doing that explaining. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the major verses for next week are First Timothy two, and we'll do First Corinthians eleven and fourteen. And we may do some other stuff, but they're passages that really need to be gone through with some care. So we want loads of time for those ones. Yeah, yeah. So that's coming next week. Yeah, maybe maybe I haven't been as precise as I sh- I should be. Yeah, if we sat round. Uh, like classic small groups are read our Bible and just talked about what struck us and like us just talking about the Bible isn't prophecy but within uh, the sort of house church setting you know people were making like declarative statements um, and it could be like fresh information or it could be explaining but that that sort of doing it with a sort of authoritative sense was that was an expression of, of prophecy. And we tend to have a box for like um, prophetic ministry being like, oh, someone's going to speak and 
kind of divine something about the future or the people in the room or what God wants to do or something like that, but explanatory, unpacking, applying functions in an authoritative sense were also part of prophecy. Um, now, just because someone spoke in that way didn't mean that uh, like a bona fide instance of prophecy was occurring. That was then up to the church to try and discern. Um, so there's some further steps in there. But I guess the main point I wasn't going to make was prophecy isn't just thus says the Lord, you know, shut your Bible, this is new information, here's, like, here's something new God's got to say. Actually, like the, the unpacking of scripture with not authority of like, um, I got the authority of the church or tradition, but kind of like, hey, I think the Spirit wants to draw our attention to that this, is, this means this to us. That sort of unpacking and applying, that was very much the remit of prophecy in the early church. Yeah, actually, it's in the Old Testament too. So we tend to think of Old Testament prophets as like, thus says the Lord, I'm going to tell you what happens next Wednesday. But actually, most of the prophets is explaining and unpacking things that have already been said. And, and a lot of it was very repetitive. Like, hey, I said this, and I, like, I want to reapply it. I want to draw your attention again. And so that's why there's so much repetition in the prophets as well. So it's not actually that different from the Old Testament like box that there is for prophecy either. Can I add something to that? Um, 90% of prophecy in the Old Testament was actually calling God's people back into covenant faithfulness. We only see 10% actually being like foretelling of what's going to take place in the future. The shift that we take place maybe that you, you might be trying to ask is the Acts 2 when Peter pulls Joel to prophecy into the foreground and is speaking to those in the upper room. And he says, uh, in, those, in those days, all people will prophesy. That's the shift that takes place from a particular office in the Old Testament where God called out particular people for a particular time and for a particular place to serve a particular function, mostly to call people back into covenant faithfulness when they were living a disobedient way outside of the way of the Lord. That shifts to all people in the upper room during the time of Pentecost when all people, young, old, male, female, now are given the gift of prophecy by the Spirit because the Spirit is being poured out on all people, not just specific people. Does that answer your question? That's good. There is a, a realignment that I think is necessary to the function of prophecy, of calling people back into the way of Jesus. I think correcting um, might be a, a, a hard term to unpack because it, it, it can come if, you're, if, like, if it comes from the wrong authority. It can be used more like abusively than it can be from like God himself is saying this. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, if you, if anyone has joined us for pre-gathering prayer, we take some time to listen to for God's heart for the gathering time, and we ask that He would share the ingredients of God's heart 
for what he is already up to in the gathering and how we can join into it. And we believe here that God uh, speaks and that we should listen, that it's not just a one-way conversation in prayer time. And so if we get the sense that God is sharing with us an ingredient of his heart that's going to take shape in the way that we show up to prayer ministry, to the way we lead, etc., we would consider having an ear to the ground and an ear to heaven uh, in that space of saying, we get the sense that God might be leading us in this direction as a form of prophecy. Now, what's important to note is that we also have like a filter that we run through. Does it line up with scripture? Does it line up with the character of God? The difference is we're, we're wanting to uh, take caution with hearing God's voice because we know that his is not the only voice that we hear. We hear ourselves, we hear the enemy, we hear other people, etc. So great caution is also taking place yeah. as well. Uh, but that would be kind of what it looks like at Westside on a weekly basis. I can give another really good one. Another one that strikes me that's different to complement that would be um, in Advent we looked at Everlasting Father. don't know if you guys remember that Sunday. But... Um, there was a little twist that elevated that Sunday beyond let's just like try and teach what the scriptures have to say where we felt like there was a a prophetic element to God wanting to challenge our reality and that it was actually a spiritual stronghold that required like prayer and spiritual warfare you know just God revealing something about the like what he wanted to do and the way that we were engaging that reality and, you know, uh, to all other intents and purposes, the exposition of the word, talking it through, explaining it, like, so lots of those teaching functions happened. But there was also something prophetic going on that Sunday that we could identify as well. So that's another example. Great questions, guys. Did, like, the, the Junia Junius 40-year debacle, did that... Is that kind of looked back on now pretty holistically in the Christian church as like that was a mistake and that was done out of this or is that still contested and creating I'm getting it no a little... unfortunately Molly the face you're pulling is not going to work on the recording so you're going to have to say something right <laughs> no I, I, I've learned um, from one of my academic experiences that Junius is the proper translation and so I think um, in the 1980s, there was a, uh, an opportunity to reevaluate an error that was made that we see in the NIV and a few other translations, but there are a few predominant translations that still consider Junius to be male, despite the evidence that's been provided in the academic sphere. Yeah. So Um, I feel like, I don't want to speak too broadly. I would say in the academic circles that I ran in early on, um, yeah, that, that correction hasn't been identified, and I think it does have to depend on the church. I, I think, by and large, the church actually doesn't really have this conversation all that often. Um, some of you might have heard Junior for the first time tonight. It's, it's not a common uh, teaching, Romans 16, uh, and so it oftentimes doesn't come up in like a Sunday dialogue or a Sunday preaching. Um, and so you kind of have to get in the weeds to even find out that this is maybe a debate that was taking place. Um, and it feels like small potatoes, but it is something that I think is worth being acknowledged. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Like, it's definitely a minority of academics, like widely recognized that it was a mistake. But even like I've got an ESV Bible in front of me, which is, you know, 
not a terrible translation, but um, was a translation birthed out of a fight about gender in translation. And so even the ESV translates it as junior. And the ESV is one of the, like its translation panel was more theologically geared towards like uh, preserving sort of uh, male authority, male headship, male prominence um, as, as a theological sort of warrant. So even the ESV is doing it, yeah. There's any other questions they can come chat. Yes, that's it. Because we've gone over time. We have. Do you want to pray to finish this? Yes, I would love that. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as men and women, uh, to become curious and to explore and to examine the scriptures um, and the heart of God uh, for all people. We thank you, God, for the curiosity that takes place in this space uh, and the different perspectives that are represented. I pray that as people walk out those doors, they would feel honored, uh, they would feel represented, and that this would be a space of unity on deciding the things uh, that are most important in the kingdom of God as loving one another with radical love and the inclusion of all people, men, women, young, old, and that maybe the, the parts that we are deciding and deciphering out together and exploring what the a most faithful interpretation of the text is would not cause radical division, but greater love and respect and esteem for all peoples and all walks of life. So thank you, God, for this group of people who are coming on the journey with us. I pray you bless them in the name of Jesus and that they would walk out uh, filled with the radical love of Christ as they uh, live this week out and faithfulness to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much yeah. for coming, for being here. If you didn't get a question asked that you want us to write down for next week, come tell us. Other than that, take a cookie on your way out and enjoy your evening. And somebody last week asked a question about Latin translation, and I can't remember who it was, but I did look it up. So I've got an answer for you.